Good morning, church. It's great to be with you. I want to begin with a little game. I'm going to put four different phrases on the screen. And the challenge for you is I want you to think about the last time when you had a discussion about these phrases, these ideas, okay? So four ideas, and you're going to think back, was it this week, this month, you know, how long ago were you in a conversation with someone in real terms that you talked about one of these four things, okay? That's, that's the game. Here we go. Number one, the four humors. Number two, spontaneous generation. Number three, emission theory. <laughs> Number four. Bloodletting. Okay, so here's, here's the game. If you're going, hey, I just talked about those this week. Raise your hand. Okay, there's one hand. I'm really curious to know that story, but we'll leave that for another time. Uh, if it's this month for you, just go ahead and raise your hand this month, okay? Uh, if it's this year, you've had a conversation about these, okay? Uh, if you have no idea what these are talking about, raise your hand. Yeah, look around. There we go. You're like, what do these have in common? What are these? These are all ideas that were once widely regarded to be true and yet which we do not believe today. These were ideas that everybody knew. Of course, this is how it works. Of course, this is true. And yet today we go, no, those, those are old ideas. Th- those ideas aren't true any day, uh, today. Now you might go, I don't even know what we're talking about. Let me just pick on one. Spontaneous generation is the idea of living organisms coming out of unrelated organisms. So they would see certain things appear and they didn't know how. They just thought it's spontaneous. Like uh, fleas could come from dust, they believed. Or maggots could just come from dead flesh. Like could just, just pop out of nowhere. They didn't understand where things came from. That was a way to explain it. But here's what we see. When we look at ideas like this, and you could make a long list of these kind of ideas. Here's what I'd like to suggest today. What is popular is not a good gauge for what is true. What is popular is not a good gauge for what is true. And yet, how often we, uh, we go off of what is popular in our, our pursuit of truth and our pursuit of how we navigate it. Well, today we're wrapping up a series we've been in this month called Redeeming Pleasure. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. We're so thrilled that you are with us and you are part of this with us. Uh, if you've got your journals, uh, go ahead and get those out if you've been in the series with us. We're in week four of the journal. We'll finish that out. If not, uh, just get a, a notepad app or something uh, to take notes with. And if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you do. We use them every week. We're going to be in the Old Testament today, Daniel chapter 1. So I'll give you some time to get your spot there. If you've got a physical Bible with you, just go to the Old Testament. You'll find the book of Daniel. And if you've got a Bible app on a device, a phone, uh, go ahead and scroll to Daniel 1, and you'll be ready there as well. Well, in the week one of this series, we've been kind of developing these ideas. You can go back and watch any of these online. But in week one, I, I, I set up two extremes that I often watch people go to. Extreme number one, I want to pursue pleasure, therefore I cannot pursue God. And we leave God out there, we pursue a life of pleasure, we're going to have fun. Extreme number two, I want to have God, I want to pursue God, therefore no pleasure. And, and we pursue it. And, and so what I want to talk about today is not these extremes, but how do we live in this tension in between. Most of us don't know how to live in the tension, which is why we go to one of the two extremes. We're not really comfortable in this middle ground. I want to give us some practical tools of how to navigate the middle ground. Now, as you're thinking about, hey, which pleasures are, are, are good or not, or how do we do this, I want you to just consider, uh, when you think about your opinions, when you think about your values, those things that you just know are true, those things that you do, where did you get them from? Most of us go, well, I, I, I just came to those conclusions. I, I arrived at that myself. That's, I, I think for myself, that's how I got there. 
And yet we often do not realize how much we allow others to shape us. How much we allow others to influence what we think is true. That they've documented this. In the 1950s there was a psychologist named Solomon Ash. And Ash wanted to prove and to document how much we allow the opinions of others to sway our own reality. And he famously did this in a study uh, beginning in the 1950s. And this has been replicated numerous times. I want to show you an old school video where they were first testing this idea out. And they could show how we allow the, the opinions of others to shape our own reality. And this has some haunting implications for us today as well. Check this out. The Ash experiment is one of psychology's oldest and most popular pieces of research. A volunteer is told that he's taking part in a visual perception test. What he doesn't know is that the other participants are actors and he's the only person taking part in the real test, which is actually about group conformity. Please the experiment you will be taking part in today involves the perception of line length. Your task will be simply to look at the line here on the left and indicate which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. So for example... The actors have been told to match the wrong lines. The volunteer will be monitored to see if he gives the correct answer or if he goes along with the opinion of the group and gives the wrong answer. In the first test, the correct answer is two. Uh, one. 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 Two. One. Once again, the correct answer is two. Three. 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 The Ash experiment has been repeated many times, and the results have been uh, supported again and again. We will conform to the group. Again, we're very social creatures. We're very much aware of what the people around us think. Uh, we want to be liked. We don't want to be seen to rock the boat. So we will go along with the group. Even if we don't believe what people are saying, we'll still go along. One. 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 Group dynamics is one of the most powerful forces in human psychology. Now there's an element of that that's humorous. When you, you watch the internal struggle, and yet when you realize in just one question, he already reverts to the norm and changes his own perception of truth by question number two. And that should have some haunting implications for us today as we ask, you know, internally, how are we living? How are we deciding those things that we arrive at as true and right? And, and how much are we allowing others to shape it? In practical ways, how do you figure out the, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, the books that you read, the clothes that you wear? The vehicle that you drive, the house you live in. How are all these things shaped? Is it by other people's uh, opinions and, and what is normal? Or things that you have arrived at and said, this is what I want to be about. Now you might be going, well, well pastor, doesn't this happen at church? Isn't this, you know, conformity thing at church? And the answer is yes, it does happen at church. And that's actually one of the benefits of church. Because we live in a society that shapes you toward the views that are not biblical views. And if you ever want to have a leaning toward the biblical views or leaning toward Jesus, you're going to have to do it in community. You have to have other people that have a normative idea of something. And you go, oh, that sounds weird. But it doesn't mean that we do that and we turn off our own filter. And we turn off our own sense of, God, how are you meeting this, you know, meeting me here? And how do I determine what is truth? 
Now, I, I had, uh, not too long ago, I had my own experience uh, with the ash experiment. Uh, it wasn't actually the ash experiment. I just found myself in almost identical situation. I was in a class for my master's degree, and there was about seven of us in this class. It was a small class. And, and one night, the professor was, was teaching, and he, he put this quote up on the screen, and it was this provocative idea of uh, this, is, you know, this is the right way to theologically apply this idea. And then he said, I'm curious to know how many of you agree or disagree with this idea. And normally it would just be an open discussion, but that night he decided to literally go down, you know, person by person and ask each of us whether or not we agreed with it. I'm second from the end and on this, this list. So he begins, you know, do you agree with the quote? Yes, 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 yes. So it gets to me. I go, no. He goes to the next person. He goes, wait, did you say no? Yeah, I, I don't agree with it. You're telling me you don't agree with this quote? Uh, No. We get into a 45-minute discussion on why I don't agree with it. And I start laying it out. Well, okay, here's why. And I start walking through, you know, these things. And, and I literally am listening to his answers back, and I'm very confused because to me they make no sense. And so I'm sitting there and I'm going, what? How are you arguing this? And everyone else is on his side. They're all arguing it. And I'm sitting there going, I'm just confused here. I kid you not. So after me, finally we get to the 45-minute answer that I give. Then it gets to the, the last person. Not, not exaggerating. This guy goes, you know, when I began this class, I was where Jeremy is. But now I agree. I say yes. I'm like, I'm literally pushing people the other direction against my own ideas. But here's the point. I went home that night. I was messed up. I remember going home, talking to Michelle, going, something's wrong with me. Like everybody else can see something and it makes no sense to me. And clearly something's wrong. Clearly I'm off. And I'll tell you, I had a hard time going to sleep that night. Because I remember sitting there going, God, am I just off? Am am I just so out to lunch that I can't see what what everyone else can see here? And and what do I do with this? And, and, And I mean, literally just couldn't make sense out of it. The next day I get an email from the professor. And he says, hey, uh, I didn't get a chance to last night, uh, but I just wanted to say thank you. He goes, in all my years of teaching this class, no one has ever argued what you argued. And he said, you did a great job making that point. Now, here's the point. That, that meant so much to me because of how I, I, I felt so much pressure to conform to the rest of the group. And even when I was able to hold my ground on that one answer, I went away from it, you know, beat up and battered going, I'm broken or something's off with me. And that email confirming it made me feel so good. But I just remember realizing, wow, even if I think this is true, this is right, if everyone else around me, uh, they can really shape my perception of that. So the question then, are we just doomed to keep repeating the ash experiment? Are we just doomed to say, hey, we're just going to go along with everybody else anyways. What's the point? Now, here's the point. I've got some good news for you today. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. I want to show you uh, what I would suggest is the way in which we navigate this tension. As opposed to saying, hey, I won't worry about it. It'll take care of itself. No, then you'll just do what people around you do. Uh, Instead, you have to have a different way of navigating it. And today we're going to look at some practical ideas and how to do that. So Daniel chapter 1, uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And this is going to be a story many of you may not be familiar with. Uh, but it's a fascinating story to, to study. Uh, and we're just going to look at part of this story uh, for our purposes today. Here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. you got two kings, Judah king, uh, Babylon king. Babylon is going to win. They're going to take over. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand 
along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and he put in the treasury or in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. So here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar, representing Babylon, comes in, takes over Jerusalem. He doesn't just conquer it. He, he, he does this thing where he says, all right, I want the best and the brightest that Israel has to offer. I'm going to take them, and I'm going to make them into my group, and they will represent me. Now, imagine this in real terms. If today some other foreign nation comes over, takes over America. Uh, we now live under their rule, under all their, you know, however they want to do it. We're subject to that. But on top of that, they decide, hey, we're going to take the very best Americans, the best and the brightest, and we're going to take them into our nation and raise them as our own. It is insult to injury. Not just that you lost, but now you're getting the very best that you have to offer taken from you and going toward this other conquering nation. Now, you, you can imagine how the Israelites during this time would feel abandoned by God, would feel like, man, everything has left. In fact, I would suggest this story is really the pivotal story in the Old Testament to help you make sense out of so much of, of what's in the Old Testament, this fall of Jerusalem and, and what it means to the Israelites. But, but you have this sense where they go, God has left us, God has failed us, God's not with us. And yet it's not true. And so we learn a story about some of these guys who get deported off into Babylon and how God is still with them. But the way in which God is with them is interesting. He doesn't give them physical might to take over the Babylonians. He gives them something else. Let me show you in, in Daniel chapter 1 what verse 17 says, and this is an intriguing verse. To these four young men, this is Daniel and three of his friends, okay, this is the, the, the one who the book's about. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now, I want you to just look at this verse and just ask yourself, are those the kind of things we expect from God? Are these the things that you find yourself praying for that God would give you insight into? Most of us say, no, we, we don't expect this from God, it sounds a bit strange. And if it doesn't sound strange, let me try to, to uh, you know, re really bring some context to this. Let me give you Jeremy's modern translation of this verse, okay? You guys aren't ex as excited as I want you to be. <laughs> I I've been working really hard on this. I think this is a really good verse. All right, so here's my version of this verse. To these four young men, God gave understanding of Dostoevsky, Dickens, and Shakespeare. He also gave knowledge of string theory, quantum physics, and relativity. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams better than Sigmund Freud. That's the point they're making here. And you're going, wait, God doesn't give those things. That's not from God. And yet, this is in a very real sense the kind of thing that, the, that, that we're learning here. Like, oh, this is what God gave them. Does God care about our understanding of literature? I mean, it just seems like a really weird thing. What about dreams? God cares about dream interpretation? I mean, are these the things that God knows about? But here's what you realize. God's knowledge is not only about the Bible. Well, if I have a spiritual question, then I'll ask God. If I have a question about anything else, I'll ask my friends. 
You know, that's how we often think. No, no, God isn't just knowledgeable about spiritual things. He's knowledgeable about all things because he created all things. Which is why this premise that we've been working from the entire series is that by pursuing pleasure on God's terms, we experience more of it. Why? Because God created it all. And so if we think we're going to get more pleasure going to someone else for advice than the one who created it, we're kidding ourselves. And so you see this in Daniel. Now you might be going, okay, that's great, but I have no idea how to navigate that today. I have no idea what, what do we do with that. How, how do we live out a life like Daniel in our culture today? Let me give you two questions, very practical questions, that I, I use in my own life uh, and the way that I navigate this tension. And, and for full disclosure, I didn't come up with these. I stole them from the Apostle Paul. Okay? So if you're wondering, hey, these sound familiar, they are, I got them from Paul. But I think that he offers us a way to live in this tension without going pleasure and no God or God and no pleasure. How do I live in the space in between? Here's the two questions I'd encourage you to ask. Number one, what is true? Simple question, what is true? You begin to look and go, hey, I want to objectively ask a clarifying question. Is this true? Paul said it this way in Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul says, look, if you can find truth around you, think about it. Find those things that are good. And, and Paul's just said this idea of like, like grab those things out and like leave the rest. Like bring those to the surface and hold on to them. Hold on to those things that you find. Think about those things. See, truth can be found all around us. And, and, and yet a lot of us, we, we don't think to look. And it doesn't mean truth is only if it sounds like a Bible verse that you know. No, truth can be all sorts of things. It can be a depiction of pain or of loss or of sadness. Or, or it can be uh, some aspect of really what it means to be human. There's all, all kinds of representations of truth around us, not just in those things that sound like a Bible verse. Now, in my opinion, one of the reasons why Christians often struggle with this is that instead of living in this tension and saying, we are going to critically ask questions like, what is true? We instead said, let's create some categories that allow us not to think. Here are the categories. We'll put secular things over there and sacred things over there. So we have Christian things and we have non-Christian things. And then all you have to do is just go to the Christian things and do all of those. And that's why if you've ever, I grew up in the church, if you ever felt judged by Christian community, it's because you didn't do enough of the Christian things. This is my childhood, right? Like, hey, you don't do enough of that. I've been there. I've experienced it. Because that's how we tend to navigate this tension. Uh, and yet I would suggest that's not what you find in Scripture. That's not what you find, especially from the early church. We have secular things out there, Christian things in here, and the Christian things are the right things. Only do those things. Which is why we have Christian music, we have Christian movies, we have Christian everything. And in case you think I'm, I'm exaggerating, let me show you just a few Christian things you may not know even existed. Let's say, for example, you decide, you know what, my family, we want to have a fun game night. We want to make some memories. We want to have some time together. Let's do that. But we don't want to get, you know, the secular culture into my, my kids. So we got to be really careful. So let's like, like a game like Monopoly. That would be so fun. But not Monopoly because that, that could be bad. So let's play, I don't know, Bibleopoly. 
That way we get the best monopoly with the Christian version and we never have to worry about anything else. This will be great. Win, win. Right? Or let's say your clothes need some work and you're like, hey, I gotta, I gotta find someone that can do it. Well, you don't want to take it to anybody because who knows what they might do to your clothes. You gotta find someone you can trust, like this company, Jesus Alterations. <laughs> I mean, you know they're gonna take good care of your clothes because you can, you can trust these guys. Or maybe you're like, you know what, my breath is just, I, I need a mint, I need something, but. I don't want to get a secular mint because there might be chemicals, secular chemicals in that. And so I don't want that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a Christian version so you get something like this. Fish mints. Reaching the world one piece at a time. These are real products, people. Now, <laughs> there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these. Okay, And so if you are a big Christian product person, that's cool. Here's the point. When you start to believe that there are all these Christian versions of everything, you start to turn off your vision and your eyes to everything else around you. And this is the problem. This is why the Daniel verse sounds so weird to us. Because Daniel's not living in Christian world. He's in Babylon. How can Daniel navigate all these things? He's in Babylon. So many of us are going to go, no, no, I don't want to live in Babylon. I want to have a Christian everything. And that's not what we see. And here's the real danger. When you go, hey, I'm just going to choose a Christian version of everything, you start to believe um, God only lives in the Bible, he only lives in Christian things, and he only lives in the church. And if you want to go see God, go visit him there, because he's nowhere else. And you begin to turn off your expectation of God doing anything else the rest of the time. Nope, he's not there, he's not going to do anything, he's just in these areas. We'll visit him when we want. That's where God lives. But the reality is God's truth is all around us. If you're willing to objectively look and, and, and critique it a little bit. Uh, I, I've uh, read a number of books from an author named Brett McCracken. And he's also a, a film critic. He doesn't just critique Christian films. critiques all films for his job. And, and yet he's a Christian doing it. Here's his perspective on this. He said Christians should make good art true art. Art unafraid of exploring mystery, portraying evil, and looking for truth wherever it appears. Which is exactly what the best secular artists are doing. See, he's learned how to find truth all around him. Now, this does not mean, listen carefully, that everything around you is true. Oh, okay, Jeremy's just saying it's all true. No, not at all. It means you begin to look all around you and ask, is it true? Is that true? Is this true? You objectively begin to live in that tension. And here's the reality. Instead of going, oh, I have these clean categories and I can just run to the category, you have to actually meet with the Spirit of God in the moment. Go, God, help me. Is this true or, or is it not? And instead of just running to a category, you, you wrestle through that a little bit. And again, you see Paul do this elsewhere in Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5.20, he says it like this. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Paul's like, look, don't write them off. Don't run away from them. Don't abandon it. No, test it. And if it's good, hold on to it. It's such a simple premise. Look. Look around you, test it. If it's true, hold on to it. If it's not, let it go. Could we do the same thing today? Could we walk around and go, God, is this true? Spirit, you know, communicate to me. Give me a sense. Is this true? And if you go, I don't think it is true, let it go. But if it is, it doesn't matter where you found it. Because all truth belongs to God. 
if we believe that the God that the Bible points us to, that Jesus is the true God, what are we afraid of finding in the world around us? If he's true, all truth will point to him, ultimately. And so we learn to approach without a fear of, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of what I might stumble across. No, it's all belonging to God. If it's true, it's part of God. So it's a huge question that we ask. Question number two, what is beneficial? We begin by asking what is true. And if it gets past the truth filter, you go, well, is it beneficial? Now here's where you get a much more subjective answer. First question, pretty objective. We should all conclude together that is true or it's not true. This one, we're going to have lots of different answers on. Well, is it, is it beneficial? I think yes, I think no. How do we live that out? Here's how Paul says it in Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Let's just stop the sermon there, go home, we'll all be good. Uh, let us stop ju- passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, Paul says, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Let that line sink in. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Whoa, Paul, whoa. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you saying here? Is this like postmodern Paul? Like what's going on? All things? No, Paul's going, look, ask some clarifying questions. Is it beneficial? It might be beneficial for you, but not be for me or, or vice versa. But look, it's not unclean by itself. Like you, you got to wrestle through it a little bit deeper. Now this is where it goes sideways in community. Okay? This is where we get really backwards with one another. It gets really weird and we start to judge one another, which is why Paul says, let us not uh, you know, pass judgment on one another. Let me give you an example. How do we wrestle through what is beneficial if it's subjective? For me, I have learned that I cannot watch scary movies. Okay? I used to watch scary movies, I want to watch scary movies, but I don't watch scary movies. Why? Because they were messing me up. I used to watch them and love them, and I could not stop thinking about them, and I could not stop the effects that it was having on my life, and on my emotions, and on my, you know, all of it. And so I, I remember coming to a point in college going, this isn't good for me. I need to stop watching scary movies. And I haven't, you know, I've tried my best not to watch any scary movie since then. Now here's the point. When I first came to this conclusion when I was in college, I remember if you as a Christian would tell me, oh yeah, uh, we're going to go see this movie, it's you know, a scary movie, I would be so judgy towards you. I'd be like, uh, you haven't heard from God on that one yet, huh? <laughs> just give it time. He'll teach you like he taught me, you know. Like, you're not supposed to watch scary movies. I, I remember, that was just me. I just thought, like, you, you haven't got that yet. And then I remember working that through and going, oh, it might not affect you the way it affects me. I've concluded for me, they're not beneficial. It's not a good thing for me to watch scary movies. But what I've learned is there are some people that it, it, it is beneficial for. That it doesn't have the same effect on them. And for them, they're able to find truth in those stories. And so now I go, great. If it's beneficial, if you find truth in it, hold on to those things. That can be great. Let me give you another example. Uh, music affects my wife and I differently. Uh, she listens to far more upbeat, positive-sounding music and uh, you know, what would be considered Christian music than I do because it affects her mood differently. That's great. But she doesn't expect me to listen to her music when she's not around. She, she understands that music doesn't affect me like that. And, and so part of, of maturing is, is realizing, hey, if I'm a mature Christian, I don't expect you to have the same filters I have in my life. This is where judgment comes in. When we look around and we go, hey, if we're going to be community, uh, we all decide together, no, you know, no scary movies. All right, check. What else? 
Well, hey, dancing messes me up. All right, no dancing. What else? Uh, this messes me up. All right, no. And you get these lists of things. You go, well, why do I have all these lists? Because it messed somebody up. And what Paul is saying is you don't need rules for the whole community. Just decide for yourself. If it's not beneficial, don't do it. You can just abstain yourself from it. But it might not be the same for the people around you. And so Paul is giving us a way to navigate through this. Now, at this point in the message, you might be going, I don't know what to do with this. You're telling me to rely on the Spirit of God, and I'm not sure I can hear God's voice that well, and I'm not sure what conclusions I would get to, or my neighbor would get to, or my kids would get to, or what is going to happen if we just let God navigate this with us, okay? Everybody take a deep breath. Here's the reality. If you're wondering, well, how do we know if it's the voice of God? How do I know if God has given me the answer what is true and what, have been, what is beneficial? You always measure the voice of God with two things. You measure it with the Bible and you measure it with the church. So you, when you sense God telling you something, God, this is what you want from me, compare it to Scripture. Does it line up with God's Word? Then compare it with Christian community or the church. Hey, does this make sense to other people who have the same Spirit of God that you have? And if it is truly of the Lord, there will not be contradiction there. God will not contradict himself. But I have just seen this pastorally often. I'll give you a couple examples. I have a friend in ministry who said one time he was meeting with a guy and he was talking about his marriage. And the guy said this line, I just don't know why God would bring this other woman into my life after I'm already married. He's like, I don't know why God would do that, but I got to get a divorce now. Got, you know, found my soulmate. And my friend's like, uh, no, that's not what the Bible says. That is not at all how God works. God is not going to bring another woman into your life if you are a married man. Okay? So if that's your, your thinking today, sorry, we can shut that one down. That's not biblical. It's not how it works. Okay, so that's, that's Bible. There's, there's certainly times where I think God told me, and then you can go back to Scripture and go, that's, that's not how that works. Or there's times that the community who also have the Spirit should be help, able to help you discern. Now, a lot of times I'll meet with someone, and they'll tell me some crazy idea, and then they'll follow it with the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, God told me. And they say this with a smugness because it's like, you can't say anything to that. And I remember years of this, meeting with people, like, eh, God told me. And I'm like, you know, how do, I, how do I argue that, you know? So finally I developed a line that I started using. Uh, and, and just so you know, I might come up in a conversation with you, but uh, here's a line. <laughs> Here's the line that I started using. When someone would tell me, God told me, and it just sounded ludicrous to me, I would just say something like, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. What? I'm not saying he did or didn't. I'm just telling you, that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. The Jesus I know wouldn't do that. So uh, you should probably go and get some clarity on that one. I mean, you talk about ticking people off. No, God told me that. Did he? I don't know that he did because it doesn't sound. There have been so many times in my life I have, I have wondered, I, I, think God is, I think God's saying this. And, and I'll submit it to community around me and they will help me discern the voice of God. Because here's the deal. If the, the, the voice of God, the spirit of God is talking to you, he's the same spirit and the Christians around you. It's not different spirits. It's one spirit. So it should be confirmed in other believers that say, yeah, that sounds like what I think the spirit would say to you. That sounds totally consistent. And if it's not, if they're going, whoa, that, that's crazy, then you should have a red flag. You're probably not hearing from God the way you think you are. And this is why Christian community matters so much. So many of us don't have anybody to go, hey, here's what I think God's telling me. What do you think? 
And if you don't have that, you need to find people. This is why a life group is so important. Hey, can I, can I wrestle this through together? Because I'm wondering what God is trying to tell me in the midst of this. Now, this might sound totally daunting to you going, I don't know how to follow God's voice like this. I don't know how to navigate this tension. Can I just run to the Christian camp? Can I just pick all things Christian, call it a day? Look, a lot of Christians will do that. I, I plead with you, don't, don't, don't do that. God is going to meet you in this tension. You will see him. It will require you to do a little of your own thinking. But God will meet you there and you will see him in unbelievable ways. Now let me close with one final illustration. We'll play one, one more game. Here's the game we're going to play. I'm going to show you a zoomed-in photo of a woman's face. And I want you to imagine what you think she looks like. Okay? What, what kind of hair? Uh, what does her face look like? What color eyes? All of that. You're going to try to imagine her face uh, based on the zoomed-in part of it. And you're just going to, you know, try to imagine the rest of it. And then we'll zoom out a little bit at a time. And you can compare and keep adjusting your, your guess to see how accurate you are. Okay? So let's zoom in here. You're going to see a woman's face. This is part of her lip, part of her nose. Uh, you got to go off of that. What do you think she looks like? Okay, I'm going to give you a second. Just mentally create a, a, a face that you think goes with uh, this picture. Okay, now we're going to zoom out a little bit. Okay, now you know a little bit more. You can compare, you can tweak it, adjust your, your guess a little bit if you think, oh, I was, I was a little bit off. Okay, let's zoom out a little bit more. Okay, how, 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 you know, how are you doing? How accurate were you to that? Some of you going, okay, maybe. You adjust a little bit. I'll zoom out one more time. How many of you thought you were looking at a painting? Because it's not a real woman's face if you haven't got it yet. <laughs> now, I, I, remember, I remember seeing this and I saw this online and I saw the zoom in thing. I went, What? That's a painting, and then you zoom out and you're going, that is unbelievable. And I remember thinking, what is real anymore? I mean, I don't even know if this, I, I give up. Like, how do, you know, here's the deal. You might have this feeling, we're talking about, I don't know how to apply these things. I don't know how to live with the presence of God. How on earth? Here's the good news for you, church. Listen in, okay? Here's the good news. Number one, you do not have to choose between God and pleasure. Number two, you do not have to fall victim to the ash experiment over and over again. Here's the good news. If you are a Christian, if you have submitted your life to Jesus, you have the living, breathing spirit of God inside of you. Can I get an amen? amen. So we should act like it. We should not be the same people that we would have been if we didn't have God's spirit. We should act like there is something inside of us that is leading us and moving us and pushing us and speaking to us in such a way that we go, I cannot live the way I would have lived before because I have God literally driving me forward. And here's what's so scary to me is that so many of us are unsure of this or skeptical. Of, oh, I don't know what he'd say and I don't know how to do that. That's the joy of following Jesus. You go, you have given me the spirit and I'm going to go do my best to hear it and to follow it and to see what happens. And you want to live a crazy adventure? Start listening to the voice of God in your life. If your Christianity sounds boring, it's because you're the one doing it. Listen to the voice of God and go, God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want me to do here? And then follow it. 
And it may put you right smack dab in the middle of a tension that you have no idea how to navigate. And so you'll ask questions like what is true and what is beneficial. And you will rely on the spirit of God to help you navigate the answers. And you'll go back to his word. You'll go back to community. And that is the joy of living the life that God has designed for us. May we not just disregard the spirit because we're unsure of how to navigate it. I want to close by reading for you a simple passage of what Jesus thought about the Holy Spirit. Okay, What Jesus said to us about the Holy Spirit. And I want you just to ask yourself, is this how you are living your life today? Is this how you are envisioning the Spirit of God today? And if not, you are missing out on what God has for you. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You want to know what God has in store for you? You want to know what God has for your life? Ask him. Ask the Spirit of God to meet you. He will declare what is God's and he will give it to you. And church, we should act like there is a spirit inside of us that is is shaping us. We should not look like the world. We should not give in to what the world is saying. We should say, you know what? We have a different way of navigating because we have the spirit of God who is alive and well. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside of you if you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ. Let's act like it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need your spirit. We need to know that we can live in this tension, that we don't have to resort to clean categories of secular and sacred, but we can live in Babylon as Daniel did. We can navigate the world around us without fear because we know that all truth belongs to you. God, what are we so afraid of? Would you give us a reliance, a dependence upon your spirit, an expectation that we are looking and waiting for you to speak to us, that we are asking you clarifying questions as we navigate the tension of the world that we live in, that we are pursuing this life that you have designed us for, and we are realizing you will meet us there. God, may we be a community known for how we listen and follow your spirit, not because of a bunch of good ideas, or not because of a bunch of people just trying to behave, but because we follow the living and act of spirit of God. God, move in our communities. Move in this church. Would you speak to us in powerful ways? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.